The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box. Ukraine accuses Russia of bombing a children's hospital in the besieged city of Mariupol as Moscow intensifies its attacks, while the Ukrainian president warns of a humanitarian disaster. An aerial bomb on a maternity hospital is the conclusive evidence that what is happening is a genocide of Ukrainians. Europeans, you won't be able to say that you didn't see what happened to Ukrainians in Mariupol. You saw, you know. The Ukrainian leader hints at a potential compromise on his country's NATO membership ahead of crucial talks between Foreign Minister Dmitry Kaliba and Russia's Sergei Lavrov today. U.S. stocks rally to close out their best day since June, while European equities make their biggest one-day gains in almost a year, sending Asian stocks higher. Crude prices recover after a steep decline over an uncertain outlook for OPEC. Meanwhile, Amazon shares jump in extended trade after the tech titan unveils a 24 one stock split and approves a $10 billion share buyback. Ukraine has accused Russia of genocide after authorities said forces had bombed a children's hospital and maternity ward in Mariupol during an agreed ceasefire. Donetsk authorities said 17 people had been injured in the attack, while the UN announced it was working to confirm the number of casualties. The assault has sparked international condemnation. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said he is prepared to have an open dialogue with Russia's Vladimir Putin. In an interview with Sky News, Zelensky said he expected both sides will have to compromise. Is it possible to do a deal with the Russians or not? It doesn't sound like it, it is. It will be very difficult. Yeah. Anyway, it will be very difficult. But, but it's true that I will try and we'll see. But not, not only on my, not, it's, it's, it's not the story about, you know, it's not fairy tale, the serious things. It's not about my own decision. It's the decision of two countries and two peoples. Yes, and, and the decision of two presidents. And one of them is Putin. So we'll see. Well, what happens if he said, you, if you go, if you, President Zelensky, leave, if Putin says, President Zelensky, go, then we can stop the war. I love my country, and I know that was one of the ideas, and not my ideas, I don't, wa I don't want to speak whose ideas, but I know exactly that if I lived my office and my country, my people, I think that it would be very difficult for our country it would be very difficult to unite our country. Volodymyr Zelensky. Well, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has arrived in Antilia in southern Turkey ahead of planned talks with his Ukrainian counterpart, Dmitry Kaliba. Hadley is on the ground there and joins us with more. Hadley, what would you say expectations are going into these talks? 
Not necessarily optimistic, Jeff, but certainly there is room for hope. And that's because in a series of interviews from Ukraine's president over the last 24 hours, he's essentially suggested uh, that NATO membership might be negotiable. And that's, of course, because he's seen over the last 15 days of this conflict, he says that NATO just isn't prepared um, to go to war for Ukraine, something that has been pretty much a given since the start. However, you've got to take a step back and think about what else could potentially be on the table for Ukraine. One of the things that I've been told by Ukrainian officials is that any conversation about NATO membership would also have to include guarantees about the southeastern regions, those breakaway regions of Luhansk and Donetsk. Those kinds of guarantees would obviously include ideas about their territorial integrity and worries, of course, that have been surrounding those areas, as well as Crimea, since the very beginning of this conflict, about just what could potentially happen to people um, in the coming days. Now, one of the things that we'll be watching for as these talks progress later today here in Antalya is whether or not we'll see any movement from the Russian side. You heard Mr. Zelensky saying that there would have to be some kind of compromise from both sides. Of course, the Russians in conversations, Vladimir Putin himself, Himself, his foreign minister again and again suggesting that there was a hard line that they had drawn in the sand and that they would not be open to any negotiation or any compromise when it came to Ukraine's membership in NATO. But again, Zelensky saying in the last 24 hours that that could potentially be a point of negotiation. That's pretty huge given what we've seen over the last 15 days. This is a conflict, of course, that has already left more than 13,000 people dead, 2 million plus displaced, $10 billion in damage, and seen Russia basically forced out of the global financial system and facing a multi-billion dollar default. So given where we were 15 days ago, given where we were a week ago in that first round of conversations between the Ukrainians and the Russians, it does seem at least that the ball is moving forward a little bit. Guys. There have been various reports, Hadley, that the Russians are still pretty much demanding the same thing, that Crimea is effectively handed over legally to Russia and that the Donetsk region becomes independent and demilitarized. So this is the same point at which uh, we entered this war, the same claims and arguments being made by the Russians. Are the Ukrainians, do you think, in any mood to concede that territory? Well, given the amount of conflict, given the amount of humanitarian crisis we're already seeing, not just with uh, the displacement situation, but also Mariupol, for example, and the failure of both sides to come to any agreement about humanitarian corridors, uh, the Ukrainians essentially suggested that the Russians um, broke the ceasefire agreement and have been shooting at people. Um, as a result of the fact that the only Ukrainian, or rather humanitarian corridor that the Russians have been open to is one in which Ukrainians would be sent to Russia or sent to Belarus, something that the Ukrainians have said absolutely no to. Um, one of the questions that um, we've been asking, of course, are what would be the areas in which we could potentially see some kind of movement? There's been a suggestion that Crimea, for example, Ukraine would make some kind of guarantee that while they would still claim this as their territory, still consider it a part of Ukraine, that potentially we could see um, a movement there in the sense that they wouldn't go out to fight for it, if you will, um, and which is basically the stalemate that we've seen since 2014. But you have to take a step back and think about the fact that, you know, the conversations, even if they don't seem to be moving on the Russian side, at least they're happening. 
Hadley, thank you very much for bringing us the latest. I'm going to take a bridge to markets now as we talk about hopes of a diplomatic solution that put a rocket under stocks. And you can see risk on appetite very much returning to the markets. The Dow rallying 2%, 2.5 on the S&P and 3.6 on the NASDAQ. And if you look at the market levels, don't forget we've been in bear market territory on the NASDAQ. We're still deep in the red from the 52-week highs, down 18%, but out of that 20-plus percent territory. And on the other majors, uh, worth noting... The one we watched had been the Dow, which tipped into correction territory on the news flow. It is just sitting a, a tad off those levels, now down 9.9% from its 52-week peak. So very strong trading momentum to the upside here. And worth noting all the various different components. It was uh, big technology names from the fangs to the momentum tech plays, but also banks. So investors reassessing here as we saw the drop in the oil price on hopes that there can be some sort of workable solution here. Clearly many hurdles to get past and negotiating tactics from the Russians, as Hadley just pointed out, that could be a major headwind here, even for market sentiment that seemingly recovered in the, the daily session yesterday. It may still be a very rocky path for a lot of investors from here. Take a look at the down. You can see just how bumpy that trading session was. Steep falls and morning session, uh, a very strong recovery, more falls later in the session before, again, a stronger pattern and then a, another fall away into the finish, which uh, took us off some of the highs of the trading session. So it does tell you that even though we can move strongly to the upside, the direction may not just be one way. And the Nasdaq too, I want to take you to the year-to-day performance as we've seen an incredible uh, wipeout for this sector. A lot of hedge funds have been caught up in these trades as well. A lot of market participants that have been long technology names, despite some of the looming risks around higher inflation. And you can see the market has been grinding lower over January, again in February, and then on the news flow around uh, what we've seen with Russia, Ukraine again falling. So year-to-day, the performance it uh, has been down 15%. Uh, big news flow overnight, though, as uh, all eyes on an Amazon stock split and just what that means for more momentum in uh, big names like Amazon. Let me take you to the likes of uh, Asia. Markets, they're picking up on this green. Very definitive run. And don't forget, many of these markets fail to catch a bit of late, even if you've seen uh, other markets starting to stabilise. Japanese stocks have been down heavily, and you can see it's been a very strong bounce back today. Nearly a 1,000 points as a result of the upside, and almost 4 so it is a big step up. Hong Kong, arguably the worst hit in the region of late uh, with dual threats of COVID, the risk around the restrictions, the crimping activity, as well as the fallout from Russia, Ukraine, and the macroeconomic environment. It has been back right around those 2016 levels. You can see it is a rise today, but not as much as you're still seeing in other markets. So slightly more cautious approach there. Very strong bounce on China and on Australia, not keeping pace with that Japanese stock market, but still definitive moves to the upside. Let's take a look at that European close yesterday because we did see early conversations and news flow around any form of a breakthrough, how it would happen in practice, uh, what Ukraine would consider, what Russia would uh, consider as well. And you can see markets took at least a glimmer of hope as a, a massive positive. It might have been an overreaction, but you can see after very strong selling that went on all last week, continued at the start of this week again as markets here then looked at the action stateside, actually then flipped into rally mode and particularly on the DAX that was a real standout close to 8% as you can see not too far behind the French market and uh, the uh, FTSE as a result of uh, slightly more safe haven status around the commodities story around this conflict with Russia you can see it was up three and a quarter percent so what a day Jeff uh, the question is what comes next today
Yeah, no, remarkable, isn't it? Let's get to Timothy Ash then, Senior Emerging Markets Sovereign Strategist at Blue Bay, uh, Blue Bay Asset Management. Timothy, good morning to you and welcome to the programme. Before we wade in and start talking about some of the uh, sovereign opportunities or otherwise here, can I just ask you about your view on the price action that we saw yesterday in markets? Because it was every asset class and it was a complete reversal of what we've seen in recent trading ses sessions. What do you think happened and what do you think happens next? Well, markets were desperate for some uh, some good news, maybe some short covering, uh, dead cap bounce, all that kind of, uh, kind of angle there. Um, I mean, optimism about peace talks. I mean, I think you know, that's as I, I guess th these talks are still going to be very, very difficult. That, that's the reality, right? The two sides in my mind are still fairly uh, a long way apart. Uh, you, th there was the message, you know, Shalensky's comments about NATO. The, qu the basic question, right, was this about NATO membership for Russia? And I, I really don't think it was, right? I mean, if you go back to 2014, Ukraine got invaded, uh, Crimea annexed when it had no ambitions to join NATO, right? It, it's had neutral status, it had no military capability, uh, which is what the Russians were demanding, and it still got invaded. I think you have to look back to Putin's essay that he wrote uh, in the middle of last year and distributed, distributed it to every member of the Russian armed forces that basically said Russians and Ukrainians are the same people and, you know, questioning Ukraine's sovereignty. So in the end, I think Putin still wants Ukraine. It's not really about NATO membership. So it is this kind of concession, if you want to call it a concession, uh, from Zelensky on this NATO issue, really, really concession. And, and it's not that simple either. I mean, uh, Zelensky said, you know, I'm willing to talk about NATO, but I want security guarantees. And actually, your, your reporter wasn't actually correct there. It wasn't, it's not security guarantees on DPR and LPR, it's broader security guarantees. Ukraine wants, if it's not going to be NATO, it wants the West to guarantee its security. And there's a question, who is that? Would it be NATO? Would it be the EU? Would it be a series of NATO members with military capability? But, uh, you know, this is still Timothy. pretty complicated. Well, and that's the point, isn't it? Because what you're expressing here then is the difficult road ahead with many twists and turns still before we ultimately get some sense of a, a peace agreement maybe in a resolution for markets. So given that and given how um, negative your note is on the damage that's likely to be done here to the Russian economy, what is your view of owning or buying Russian assets at these prices, as apparently we're told some Wall Street houses are doing? Well, the market's got this totally wrong <laughs> for the last year or so, right? And, 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 and misread Russia, actually. So, I, I, you know, those people that are buying Russia, I think, you know, I, I'm not sure what they know really what they're doing. Uh, look, even, you know, Russia's, the story around Russia has changed, right? And I think the investor, uh, the ability of investors to buy Russia over the longer term has also changed. I mean, a couple of things here. Firstly, the damage to the Russian economy will be long, long term, right? So it depends why you're buying it. Are you buying it because the Russian economy is going to bounce back? Don't think it is. Sanctions anyway, you know, I mean, it will require all the Russian troops out. It possibly, well, all the Russian troops out to where they were before the invasion, right, for sanctions to be reduced. And even then, I think the West has realized that Russia is this big threat to Western liberal market democracy. So the relationship between the West and Russia is going to make, remain very, very difficult. 
And this is also about ESG. ESG is a big issue now for investors, right? And I think, you know, the, the, the report you carried at the top of the hour about the attack on the hospital, uh, but Putin's generally aggressive behavior, you know, uh, has now been revealed, right? So it's now very difficult for Western big business uh, to be in Russia. I mean, that's the reality. And, and him pulling back a bit is not really going to change that. So, so Russia is a very, very challenging investment story for a, for a long time to come, unless we see major political changes in Moscow. Tim, can I ask you about uh, the sort of sanctions we've seen anyway out of uh, the West? Because it felt as though uh, we were seeing a sort of light reaction initially. The markets didn't expect too much. And then just out of the blue, very, very strong uh, sanctions from the West. What do you make of how difficult then it is for companies to, to change tact when eventually uh, there could be some sort of a resolution? Well, so ESG is the issue. I mean, it's massive for everyone. I mean, you know, it's about, you know, people don't want to be on the front page of the FT or on the, the top of the news story for you guys about their investments in Russia. Um, I think there's been a sea change in perceptions, not, not, just, not just by companies, but by populations, you know, consumers, or, uh, broader consumers in, in the world economy. And and, uh, and, and they, they are challenging, you know, these big companies about why they are supporting a regime uh, like Putin's regime in Moscow that does things like invade other countries, right? So, uh, you know, it, it, uh, and uh, a, a short term, well, a ceasefire, a, a peace deal in Ukraine, if it, if it comes, I'd be sceptical, won't really change risk perceptions about Russia, I think. You know, this is, this is going to hurt Russia for a very long time to come. The possibility of default. Fitch is warning that it could happen imminently. They've also downgraded the debt to further to junk territory. Uh, what would that mean in the context we've had a lot of uh, underwriting of asset classes? Default is not a word we often use these days, except in far-flung parts of the world. What would the ramifications be? Well, look, uh, plenty of countries uh, go through default and debt restructurings, and, and sometimes it seems as, as part of the solution. Right. So it's kind of coming out of a difficult time. You know, the, the countries and we're not able to, to kind of bear the burden of debt. Um, Russia's a bit different this time, because if you think and actually I, I would compare it to 98, the last time that Russia went through a big devaluation default. And uh, this time, and I obviously lived through that crisis, uh, this time feels much worse. Uh, and it's much worse because expectations weren't there for this last week, right? Fortress Russia, Russia was assumed to have this big balance sheet, all that kind of stuff, would never default. Well, it, it, it very likely will. And the other angle is, you know, coming out of this, uh, you know, Russia's not going to have access to IMF support. If you think of 98, I mean, the West helped Russia come, in out, come out of that debt restructuring. Obviously, oil prices rose and helped them, but but the, the, the IMF support and the debt restructuring were part of the solution. There's going to be no Western support to Russia this time to, to come out of this, this crisis. Uh, and I think sanctions will remain, as I said, for a long time. And this is going to mean that Russia is going to be a very difficult place to do business, but also for Russians, right? I mean, the Russian economy is going to be a in a dreadful place for a very long time. And that's a consequence of, of Putin's actions in Ukraine. Tim, Tim so, so briefly, what are you buying? What are you selling? Well, it's a, you know, uh, I, I guess um, the clear conclusion of this is oil and commodity prices will remain elevated, I think, for a long time. OK, yesterday was was slightly different. People got over optimistic, I think, about peace deals. But, uh, you know, uh, commodity uh, producers will do well if they obviously Russia won't <laughs> because of sanctions. But if you're you know, non-Russian commodity 
producers would do well. Think of places like South, South Africa, uh, Latin America, GCC, the Gulf region, obviously in a better position. And then on the opposite side of the, the coin are, are um, you know, the com commodity importers and, and also food, obviously food importers uh, as well. Uh, Central Europe is obviously food and energy importer. Uh, parts of Asia, and unfortunately, a lot of the developing world. And, and I think we need to think, and governments there need to think about how we can help them get through this crisis. So I think more support from the IMF, more development assistance from uh, from richer countries would would definitely be be uh, be uh, worthwhile and needed at this point at this time. Timothy, good to see you. Timothy Ash, Senior Emerging Markets Sovereign Strategist at Blue Bay Asset Management. It's ECB Day. Will geopolitical uncertainty in Europe derail the ECB's normalisation plans? We'll get you a preview from Frankfurt in just a moment. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Oil prices are recovering from a sharp drop in yesterday's session. WTI crude tumbled more than 12%, posting its worst day since November. Meanwhile, Brent crude saw its biggest one-day decline since April 2020. This after reports that the UAE was in favour of increasing supply to help plug the gap due to sanctions on Russia and was encouraging other OPEC Plus members to do the same. But the UAE Energy Minister Suhal al-Mazuri uh, later, uh, later clarified that the country was sticking with the existing deal to ramp up production by 400,000 barrels per day on a monthly basis. So who do we believe at this point? Hard to know what actually happens next. Let's talk about the data too, as US jobs openings rate dips slightly to 7% in January from December's record 7.1%. But the labor market remained exceptionally tight with worker shortages persisting in many sectors. The number of open positions was at 11.3 million in the last day of January. December's number was revised upwards to an all-time high of 11.5 million. Economists expect U.S. inflation to hit a new 40-year high in February, with headline inflation likely at 7.8% year-on-year, according to Dow Jones. On a monthly basis, consumer prices are forecast to have increased 0.7%. The numbers are closely watched uh, by the Federal Reserve, which holds its policy meeting next week. The Fed is widely expected to announce a quarter-point rate hike, despite the developments we've been watching around Ukraine. We'll have more on the state of the U.S. economy later today when our colleagues speak to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. That is a CNBC exclusive at 10 p.m. CET today. And just before that, they'll be speaking to IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva at 9 p.m. CET. The European Central Bank is expected to keep its policy unchanged in today's meeting despite euro area inflation rising to a record 5.8% last month. This was before Russia invaded Ukraine, resulting in a surge in oil and other commodity prices. 
Let's get to Aneta for a preview here. And Aneta, I wonder, could we actually see the ECB verbally do a little bit more here just to perhaps guide the market to the idea that they will be there to support liquidity in the event of that drying up because of the sanctions? I think never uh, had a, a ECB meeting be so open in, in terms of what we could expect. We could expect a hawkish surprise. We could also expect a dovish surprise, which you are now suggesting. I think what they will be stressing is that keep they keep uh, their flexibility fully open. And also when it comes to uh, the PEP reinvestments, when it comes to the APP, given that we don't know how bad the effects on the economy will be from the uh, situation in Russia and the war in the Ukraine. So I guess they keep the, the optionality and, and again and the flexibility as buzzwords very, yeah, probably very frequently used during the press conference by Madame Lagarde. So that's one area. But of course, the, the market and, and yeah, investors will be interested whether this um, interest rate hike fantasy is still active for the last quarter of this year. Um, a Reuters poll is suggesting that the ECB will hike rates during the last quarter of this year, especially probably in December. But I, I guess the, the biggest question is also whether we are going to see a commitment to um, yeah, perhaps communicate an end of the APP as well, because back in February, I think we were quite clear that the APP will end at some point in time, perhaps in the third quarter, but at the latest in the fourth quarter. So I guess any, any news on that? will be key. But of course, the biggest elephant in the room, I think, is that stagflation, because clearly more and more people do think that we are going to see a stagflationary environment and that 5% or 5.8% inflation rate, it's not the end. It will rise during the course of the next months. And of course, the ECB has to address that somewhat. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.